Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. How's it going out there? Hey, good. It's heating up. Feeling good. Hey, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Peter. I get to be the pastor here, um, part of a great staff team. And uh, today I get to preach the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I am very excited to share the gospel, the words of life with you today. Uh, As you may know, Lent began last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. Lent is this season of 40 days or so leading up to Easter. And uh, maybe you, like many Christians, uh, observe some kind of fasting or sacrifice during Lent. And uh, sometimes we do that as a way of identifying with Jesus fasting in the wilderness for 40 days at the very beginning of his public ministry. This year for Lent, I have decided to give up something. I have decided to give up reading the news on my phone at breakfast. And instead, wow, applause, amazing. Uh, Sounds like some of you have also decided to give give that up. Uh, Not because I am uh, anti-news, but because I want my mind to be calibrated to the cross, not necessarily to CBS or something like that. I want my heart to be aligned with the cross. And so I, instead of reading the news, I've taken up some devotional reading, which right now is uh, this book called The Seven Last Words from the Cross, a book which I'm inviting all of you to join me in reading. It's short. That's one of the best parts about it. A great book, and you can pick up a copy over here at the Yellow Umbrella after worship if that's something you would like to do. So I have given up reading news for Lent. Lent comes uh, comes to us, it's kind of a strange word, you know, and it comes to us from a German word, which means the lengthening of days. The lengthening of days. Lent is a season when literally the days are lengthening, right? Like every day is a little bit longer than the previous day. Every day there's a little bit more light than there was the day before. It is a season, Lent is, A season when the darkness of night begins to lose its grip on the light of the day. More light. It's a season of more light. During the final hours of Jesus' crucifixion, we're told that at high noon, 12 o'clock, when the light is supposed to be the brightest, we're told that at high noon on the day that Jesus was crucified, darkness came over the whole land and the sun's light failed. As the S-O-N's life ebbed away on the cross, we're told that the S-U-N's rays began to fail. More light? Doesn't sound like it. The dreadful darkness of death and our disobedience and the devil, they seem to have won the day at the cross. But we know 
on this side of the empty tomb, on this side of Resurrection Sunday, we know that when death stung Jesus, it actually stung itself to death. So that the Apostle Paul, I love this, he mocks death. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, where, O oh, death, is your sting, huh? I added that word. Where, O oh, death, is your victory, huh? The darkness of death had been swallowed up at the cross. More light. More light as we move toward the cross of Jesus Christ. More light as we enter into the reality that our enemies have been defeated. That's what this Lenten season is about. It's about us entering into this invitation of the lengthening of days. This invitation to more light that is available to us because of the victorious death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So welcome to Lent, friends. Welcome to the season of a lengthening of days, a season of more and more light. During this Lent season, I'm going to be preaching through Jesus' prayer here in John chapter 17. It's his prayer right before he's arrested and then flogged and ultimately crucified. And then we're going to move to some of the prayers that Jesus prays while literally hanging from the cross. All of these are some of Jesus' final words before he died on the cross. My working assumption in exploring these prayers is that we are going to get a window into the heart of Jesus Christ by listening to these, some of his final words before he died on the cross. I want to invite you to come with me to this holy place and to listen. I want you to listen to Jesus pray. I want to encourage you to, to use your organs of ears and hearts. Not your hands, not your feet, not yet anyway. Just your ears and your hearts. Those are the organs I want you to engage in these weeks. Just listen. Just listen to Jesus pray. Listen to what is ultimately on his heart. Jesus prayed a lot. We're told often in the New Testament that Jesus would get up early in the morning and go off by himself and pray. Or other times during the day, he would go find a place of solitude and he would pray on his own. But here, in John chapter 17, that prayer that Jim just read the beginning of, here we hear Jesus praying in the presence of his disciples. The scene is an upstairs apartment somewhere in downtown Jerusalem in what we call the upper room. After a Passover meal and a lengthy teaching by Jesus, Jesus looks up to heaven and he begins to speak to his father. He begins to pray. And he prays out loud in the presence of his disciples in their hearing. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he pray in the presence of his disciples? Well, I think he does so because he wants his disciples, and by extension, us. He wants they and them, and he wants us to know what his heart's desire is. So that our hearts will start to beat in sync with his heart. Jesus prays out loud because he wants to give us a window into what he cares about most about what his heart's desires are so that our hearts will begin to beat in sync with his. 
The one who recorded this prayer in John 17, his name is John. He's called the beloved disciple. And he's the guy who literally had his head on Jesus' heart in the upper room at the Last Supper. You've probably seen paintings of this. At the Passover meal, John, the beloved disciple, his head is on Jesus' heart. And John's heart began to beat in sync with Jesus' heart. I don't think Jesus is trying to teach us how to pray here. He does that elsewhere. He does that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Although the truth is, of course, if we listen to Jesus pray, we are going to learn an awful lot about how to pray. But I don't think that's his primary motive here. He's not teaching us how to pray. He wants to give us a window into what he cares about most. He wants us to peer into his heart so that our hearts will start to beat in sync with his. And so that's why I'm inviting you to just listen. Just listen in. Engage your ears, engage your hearts, and just listen. Listen to Jesus pray. What does he pray for? In his prayer, Jesus uses the phrase, I ask, three times. I ask, I ask, I ask. In verse 9, he says, I ask on their behalf. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Three times, Jesus asks. The Greek for that word ask is erotao. It means to interrogate. It's kind of an intense word. It means to boldly request. And in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, the word is used of people interrogating other people or people boldly requesting information from other people. But the New Testament never uses this word eratao of interrogating God, of asking boldly something of God. The only one in the New Testament who ever eratao's God is Jesus. Only Jesus has the right to so boldly request or to interrogate God the Father as it will, as it is. Jesus is asking the Father boldly to do what only the Father can do. And so what does Jesus so boldly ask the Father to do? What does Jesus want? Not what would Jesus do, not WWJD, but WDJW. WDJW, what does Jesus want? What does he want? What's on his heart? More specifically, what does he want for you? What does he want for us? Not from us, not from you. There's no from you in this text. Jesus doesn't want anything from you in his prayer in John 17. Not yet anyway. So what does he want for you? That's the question, and that's why I'm inviting you to listen. Listen. Listen to Jesus pray and ask this question. Jesus, what do you want for me? What do you want for us? Jesus begins to pray. Father, he says, the hour has come. The hour has come. In John's gospel, the hour is is a very specific and particular term. It refers to Jesus' death. The events around his death, like his betrayal, his arrest, his flogging, and ultimately his crucifixion. That hour, the hour of his crucifix crucifixion had come. The hour had come. The cross was literally beginning to cast its shadow over Jesus' life. Here, Jesus is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. 
It's often in the face of death that our most ultimate concerns emerge, isn't it? And in the face of death here, Jesus grants us a window into what ultimately concerns him. Into what makes his heart beat most. What he really cares about. What he desires. What he wants. So what lies at the center of Jesus' heart? What does Jesus want? Father, Jesus prays, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. It's the father's glory that is at the heart of what Jesus cares about. That's in the center of Jesus' heart. The father's glory. Five times in these five verses, Jesus uses this this word glory or glorify. Five times in five short verses. It's the father's glory that Jesus is all fired up about all the time. But what does that mean? glory. You know, it's kind of a tough word. It comes to us from this Hebrew word kabod and from the Greek word doxa. And both of these words are a little bit challenging to translate, but they have with them uh, this sense that it refers to the essence of a thing or a person. So the kabod or the doxa or the glory of a person or a thing is its essence. The Father's glory is the Father's essence. What is fundamentally, fundamentally who the Father is? What is his, his character, his essence? And glorifying or manifesting this glory, manifesting the Father's essence, this is what is on Jesus' heart. Jesus longs more than anything else for the Father's essence to be made known, to be manifest to the world. It's constantly on Jesus' radar. It's the drumbeat of his whole life, and we see the Father's glory all throughout John's gospel. One of these days, we're just going to preach through the whole gospel of John. It will be amazing. All through John's gospel, the Father's glory is repeated and referred to over and over again. John's gospel can be split up really into two parts, into two books. The first half, John 1 through 12, sometimes is called the book of signs. The book of signs. Because in the first half of John, John is highlighting for us the seven miraculous signs that Jesus performed. The book of signs. And then the second half of the gospel of John, verses or chapters 13 through 21, that's sometimes called the book of glory. Because in it, the glory of God crucified is what John emphasizes. So you've got the book of signs, the first half, all the miraculous signs of Jesus. And then the second half of the book is the glory of God crucified on the cross. But the book of signs, we could really also call the book of glory because what are the signs for? What is the purpose of the miraculous signs? It is to bring the Father glory to bring the Son glory, to manifest the essence of the Father. What is he really like? If we boil down everything to its essence, what would be left? That's what we want to know about the Father. I want to read from you a brief, well, it's not so brief, actually, excerpt from my seminary professor, Daryl Johnson, because he lines up these signs, these miraculous signs in John's gospel so well when it comes to how they represent and reflect the Father's glory. 
I thought about this and I was trying to put these, uh, these things into my own words and I was trying to rework it and I just thought, why am I doing this? Daryl does it so well. And so I want to read for you an excerpt from my seminary professor, Daryl Johnson. He's going to walk us through some of the miraculous signs in John's gospel. If any of this sounds a little bit familiar, it's because I have been deeply shaped by Daryl Johnson in my own preaching. Listen to Daryl. Walk through Jesus' signs again with me, will you? At the wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus turns water into wine. Not water and grapes into wine, just water without grapes into wine. It's a massively creative act. Jesus is meeting a real human need. He's also manifesting the essence of the glorious God. The Son is glorifying the Father. Jesus cleanses the temple in Jerusalem. He removes the obstacles to worship. He removes the expressions of injustice and oppression. He's meeting a real human need, but he's also manifesting the essence of the glorious God. The Son is glorifying the Father. At a well in Samaria, in the heat of a desert day, Jesus asks an ostracized woman for a drink of water. And then Jesus jumps over all kinds of racial, ethnic, religious, and gender walls to offer her what he calls living water. Jesus is meeting a real human need, but he's also manifesting the glorious essence of God. The Son is glorifying the Father. We keep going. Jesus finds a man lying by a pool in Jerusalem. He's been sick for 38 years. For 38 years, he has not been able to walk. Jesus says, arise, take up your pallet and walk. And the man does. That is glory. Making a human being walk again. Jesus is meeting a real human need, but he's also manifesting the glorious essence of God the Father. The Son is glorifying the Father. Yet again, Jesus is teaching near the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's getting late. There are about 5,000 men gathered there, plus wives and children. A young boy has a lunch with five loaves of bread and a couple of fish, but they are, well, what are they in the midst of such overwhelming need? Taking the meager supplies in hand, Jesus give th gives thanks and begins distributing more loaves and more fish, enough to feed 5,000 people plus with an abundance of leftovers. That's glory. Jesus meeting a real human need. Jesus is also manifesting the essence of the glorious God. The Son is glorifying his Father. Jesus is again in Jerusalem. This time he meets a man blind from birth. People are debating why this happened. So Jesus spits on the ground, makes some clay, applies it to the man's eyes. Jesus tells the man to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. The man does, and he comes back seeing. He comes back seeing. Jesus is meeting a real human need, and Jesus is manifesting the essence of God's glory. The Son is glorifying the Father. Later still, Jesus is in Bethany, about two miles over the hill from Jerusalem. His friend, his dear friend, Lazarus, has died. He's been in the tomb for four days. Lazarus' sisters are weeping. Jesus is deeply affected by their grief. His chest heaves with sorrow. That is glory. Jesus is manifesting the essence of the glorious God. 
Jesus goes to the tomb and he weeps. That is glory. A God who weeps before the pain of the world, that is manifesting the essence of the glorious God. Jesus says, remove the stone. Lord, says Mary, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus responds, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? And then Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come out. And he does. A dead man walks out of his grave. Come on. At the extreme helplessness of the human condition, Jesus manifests the essence of the glorious God. I glorified you on earth, Jesus says, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. All of these signs that manifest the essence of the Father are wrapped up in what Jesus says in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, The hour has come. There it is again. The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There it is again. Glorified. Very truly I tell you, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Seeds falling to the ground, dying to self, and thus bearing fruit. That is the glory of God revealed. In that upstairs apartment in downtown Jerusalem after dinner, Jesus gets up from the table. He wraps a towel around his waist. He gets down on his knees and he begins to wash the feet of each of his disciples. That is the glory of God revealed. Later that evening while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, soldiers come and they arrest Jesus. Jesus does not resist. Peter draws out his sword and cuts off the ear of one of those who had come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath, Peter. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then we begin to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this the glory of God revealed? The next day, Jesus was slashed with whips upon which sharp stones had been attached to inflict more pain and damage. Soldiers wove a crown of thorns and pressed it into Jesus' forehead. Then they put a purple robe on him and they mocked him, yelling, Hail, King of the Jews! The shame that Jesus took upon himself is kind of unspeakable. It's very difficult for us to imagine the shame that he endured. And then we ask, really, is this the glory of God? Revealed? Jesus was forced to carry his own execution device up the hill to Golgotha. Once he got there, he was nailed to it. And then the cross was erected for all to see. There Jesus was, nailed to the cross. Is this God's glory revealed for all to see? Jesus utters these words while hanging from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then he says, it is finished. In other words, it is completed. Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This is the glory of God revealed. 
Jesus' agonizing death on the cross is the glory of God revealed? Yes. Yes, it is. The glory of God revealed. Because at the cross, Jesus is meeting the deepest human need. Our need to be forgiven and set free from sin and Satan and our own disobedience. Jesus is manifesting the essence of the Father. As the British missionary to India, Leslie Newbegin, has written, the glory of God is the ceaseless, limitless emptying of God's self for the life of the world. The glory of God is the ceaseless, limitless emptying of God's self for the life of the world. And we see that most clearly at the cross. John Calvin in the 16th century famously put it this way. He said, the crucifixion is the theater of God's glory. Because it is here in this theater that God's essence is on the screen or on the stage to see most clearly. Again, Daryl Johnson, he puts it this way. The essence of the luminous, weighty God is finally manifested, not in a blazing burst of light, not in a dazzling display of raw power. The essence of the luminous, weighty God is finally manifested to us in the Son, taking upon himself the sin of the world, bearing in himself what you and I justly deserve. This is the glory of God revealed for all to see. Jesus meets our greatest need and shows us most clearly what the Father is like. Jesus is so resolute on his work at the cross. He's so resolute about going there that he speaks about it in the past tense. We saw this last week as well. In verse 4 of John 17, he says, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. He's talking about the cross, which hasn't yet happened. But Jesus is so resolute to go there. He's so confident that that's what, is going, that's what he's going to do, that he speaks of it as if it has already been accomplished. The work of the cross, which he has already accomplished more than anything else, is what brings glory to the Father. Because it's the work of the cross more than anything else that reveals to us the essence of the Father's heart, the essence of the Father's character. The Father's essence is this ceaseless and limitless self-emptying for the sake of the world. So what does Jesus want? W-D-J-W. What does Jesus want for us? Not from us. He doesn't want anything from us in this prayer. That's why we're just listening. What does he want for us? Jesus wants us to know so that the world will know the full extent of the self-emptying love of the Father. Jesus wants us to know so that the world will know the scandalously glorious grace of the Father. This is the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. This is what he cares about most. The Father being glorified. The Father's essence being made known. 
The Apostle John, he rests his head on Jesus' heart, literally at the Last Supper. And as John rests his head on Jesus' heart, John's heart begins to beat in sync with Jesus. And John records Jesus' prayer here in John chapter 17. He records Jesus' prayer for us to read and know and enter into so that you and I can also rest our heads on Jesus' heart. So that you and I can begin to have our hearts recalibrated and, and synced with the heartbeat of Jesus himself. And may it be so, all of this, as you listen to Jesus pray, to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpc.com.